Money FM 89.3, the best of prime time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3. Thank you for listening to us on Money FM 89.3. I'm Chua Tiantian. Now, protests erupted across China over the weekend in an unprecedented challenge to President Xi Jinping's zero COVID strategy. Now, to talk more about this, we're now joined on the line by Jonathan Frewin, senior journalist with BBC World Service Partner Hub back in London. Well, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hi, how's it going? Hey, great, and great to have you as well. So, um, Jonathan, let's start with the first question. Now, over the weekend and increasingly over the recent weeks, we've seen protests in China over zero COVID lockdowns. So what would you be looking up for this week? Well, as you've been reporting, this is quite a big development. And some analysts have said that what we've seen over the weekend is the most substantial challenge to the Chinese government since the Tiananmen Square protest back in 1989. It's going to be very interesting to see how the government responds to this unrest. The latest round began when lockdown rules were blamed by people in China when 10 people died recently in a tower block fire in Urumqi in northwest China. The authorities there deny that COVID restrictions caused the deaths, but officials in the city did issue an unusual apology late on Friday and pledged to restore order by phasing out restrictions. Some observers have also suggested that people seeing crowds of unmasked people in the stands at World Cup football matches may also be highlighting to ordinary Chinese how differently things are managed in other parts of the world, although it now appears that Chinese TV is editing out close-up shots of people in the stands. Thousands of protesters turned out in Shanghai over the weekend. People were heard openly shouting slogans such as Xi Jinping stepped down and Communist Party stepped down. Mm. Demands like that were a very unusual sight in China where direct criticism of the government and the president can result in harm penalties. Some people held up blank white pieces of paper, which had become something an emblem of these protests, a symbol of defiance against Chinese censorship, and others lit candles and laid flowers in memory of the victims in Urumqi. Colleagues of mine saw people bundled into police cars in the wake of all of that. It's, of course, pretty brave for people to protest because such an arrest doesn't necessarily mean not just a night in the cells. You know, people have been known to just disappear. And the BBC journalist Ed Lawrence was detained for several hours covering the protest in Shanghai. He said that he was beaten and kicked before being mm, released. Right. Now, well, analysts say the government appears to have drastically underestimated growing discontent towards China's zero COVID approach, where entire apartment blocks can be locked down if just one person within the building tests positive for coronavirus. And of course, the policy is inextricably linked to Xi Jinping, who recently pledged that there would be no swerving from it. There were also protests over the weekend at universities in Beijing and Nanjing, and people came onto the streets in Wuhan where COVID was first found. But a challenge that China faces is that the country keeps on recording record COVID case numbers, up to 40,000 a day. And it's tricky to imagine an alternative approach in China to the zero COVID strategy. And that's in part because there's been a pretty low take-up of COVID vaccines in the country among the elderly part of the population, most at risk of being killed by coronavirus. Just around half have had two shots of a vaccine that has some questions around its efficacy. So if the government were to let COVID run wild, there is a risk that it would face a lot of fatalities among those most mm. vulnerable to the disease. Right. So, and Jonathan, uh, I would like to zoom in and Hong Kong, right? Back in Hong Kong, the typhoon and newspaper publisher Jimmy Lai, he goes on trial under Hong Kong's national security law this week. So remind us, uh, keep us updated on the background there. Yes, well, Jimmy Lai is a larger-than-life entrepreneur, age 74, who has something of a rags-to-riches story. He's been one of the most prominent supporters of Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement, 
but a persistent thorn in China's side. And at the age of 12, he fled his village in mainland China, arriving in Hong Kong as a stowaway on a fishing boat, then went from toiling in a Hong Kong sweatshop to founding a multi-million dollar clothing empire. But when China sent in tanks in 1989 to crush those pro-democracy protests in Tiananmen Square, Mr. Lai began a journey as a vocal democracy activist in addition to being an entrepreneur. He founded a media empire centered around the Apple Daily newspaper, which was previously widely read in Hong Kong, but shut down in the middle of last year. Now, Jimmy Lai is currently serving a fairly short sentence on charges of unauthorized assembly, but this week he faces court on national security charges, which carry a potential life sentence. The national security law that was introduced to Hong Kong in 2020 was criticized at the time for potentially breaching the terms of the agreement between the UK and China when Hong Kong was handed back to China in 1997. Under that agreement, freedom such as freedom of assembly and speech was supposed to be protected, but the national security law criminalizes acts of secession, breaking away from the country, subversion, undermining the authority of the central government, and collusion with external forces. Now, one notable aspect of cases involving the new law is that they're not held in front of a jury, but rather a panel of Beijing-appointed judges. Mm. Now, just last week, six former employees of Apple Daily pleaded guilty to colluding with the so-called foreign forces, and the six accepted the charge after accusations of treason were dropped. Their guilty plea is likely to be a factor in the case against Jimmy Lai this week, and some of those pleading guilty may end up giving evidence against their former boss, Jimmy Lai. But a former executive of Apple Daily, now living in New York, argued to the BBC last week that the collusion accusation amounted to simply publishing material in Hong Kong that had been written by foreigners, such Mm. as the former governor of Hong Kong, Chris Patton. Now, the case against Jimmy Lai is set to last for a couple of months, and on the face of it, it does look likely that he'll be convicted and face a substantial jail sentence, possibly even spending the rest of his life behind bars. Um, I see. Well, um, away from Hong Kong, now let's uh, maybe look at U.S. President Biden. He is set to host his first formal state visit, and it'll be the from the President Macron of France. So what's the significance behind all of this? Well, it's the first time since the establishment of France's Fifth Republic, founded by Charles de Gaulle in 1958, that a French president has been invited to make two state visits to the U.S. President Macron was also given one back in 2018 when Donald Trump was president. As you mentioned, this is President Biden's first state visit since he became president, and that's partly down to the after-effects of the COVID pandemic, but it's certainly quite an honour for Mr. Macron. It's worth remembering that a state visit involves a lot more pomp and ceremony than a regular visit from a head of state. Think military inspections and a glamorous state banquet. Now, when announcing the visit, back in September, the White House press secretary said that it would underscore the deep and enduring relationship between the U.S. and France, America's oldest ally. And that, of course, is a reference back to how France sided with the U.S. in its war of independence against the U.K. But it's also significant because of how relations between the U.S. and France were quite heavily dented last year. Australia had been planning to buy a fleet of submarines from France, but those plans changed when the terms of what's called AUKUS, a security pact between Australia, the United Kingdom and the U.S., were announced, under which Australia would buy nuclear submarines with assistance from the U.K in U.S. instead, and cancel plans to procure those from France. France recalled its ambassadors to the two countries in response, and relations did look set to go into the deep freeze. But I think a number of things have happened since then that have led to something of a thawing, not least Russia's invasion mm. of Ukraine, which puts the U.S. and France very much on the same page. Well, so, Jonathan, what's likely going to be on the agenda for discussions between the two presidents then? Well, undoubtedly, that Ukraine conflict is set to be a central topic of conversation. President Macron has shown a willingness to engage with Russia's Russia's President Putin, although he doesn't have a huge amount to show for that engagement. That said, the US wants to ensure that its allies in Europe remain united on the question of Ukraine, and President Macron is a key figure to engage with to that end. But there are also shared goals on China. Germany is quite reliant on China for trade, and France less so. And I think the US sees an opportunity for France to help make the Europe 
European Union see China as more of an adversary than a trade partner. But there are also a few points of disagreement, which will be interesting to watch, such as the price American liquefied natural gas exporters are charging to European countries as they seek alternative supplies to those provided by Russia to keep Europe warm this winter. Right. And Jonathan, this Friday marks UN International Day for the Abolition of Slavery. So tell us more about the day and the significance and also what's being done to tackle the issue. Yeah, well, that's right. The 2nd of December marked the date of the adoption by the UN General Assembly in 1949 of the UN Convention for the Suppression of the Traffic in Persons and of the Exploitation of the Prostitution of Others. The UN says its focus by having a day to mark this is on eradicating modern forms of slavery, and that includes trafficking in people, child labour, and the recruitment of children for use in armed conflict. Now, the International Labour Organization tracks these issues, and its latest estimates indicate that forced labour is on the rise around the world. There are 10 million more people who are in modern slavery in 2021 compared to 2016, and that brings the total to around 50 million people worldwide. There's no international legal definition of modern slavery, but it essentially includes practices like forced labour, human trafficking, and practices like debt bondage. It boils down to situations that people can't escape from because of violence and coercion. Campaigners often point to the sort of contracts that bring migrant workers onto construction sites around the world, which they say can often involve conditions of modern slavery. The worker has to borrow a large sum to pay for their flight to a country, as well as work permits, and that date is paid off over time, often at eye-watering rates of interest. And in many cases, they barely earn enough to pay off that debt and end up in a very difficult situation. And there are documented cases of labour abuses in many parts of the world. All right. Thank you very much, Jonathan. That was Jonathan Frewin, Senior Journalist with the BBC World Service Partner Hub. Thank you very much for joining us on Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.